Welcome to the New Life Podcast, a ministry of New Life Presbyterian Church in Ithaca, New York. Today we have this week's sermon preached by Tim LaCroix, our senior pastor. Join us for worship each week at 10 o'clock at 950 Danby Road, Ithaca, New York. You can also visit us on our website, www.newlifeithaca.org. Now here's this week's sermon. A reading from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then... Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. My wife Rachel and I have recently been re-watching Fargo. If any of you have, have seen Fargo, the movie and the television series, uh, we are re-watching all of it. Uh, we just recently finished the, the, last, the most recent season of Fargo, and uh, we felt that it was a particularly good season, maybe even the best version of it. And so we went back and watched the movie, and now we're re-watching the whole thing. If you haven't seen it, I'll try my best not to spoil anything, uh, but it is, it, is, uh, it, is, it is worth watching, I would say. I would recommend it to you. There are a few scenes in the movies and the TV shows that are not uh, appropriate for children, but by and large, I think Fargo is good to watch because it basically is a primer on sin. It's a, I think it's a primer on sin. Starting with the movie and going through the TV shows, it really is an exploration. It's not only this, but it's at least this, that it is an exploration of sin and how sin progresses and, and the consequences for sin. In the movie and in the TV shows, the people who are intentionally engaging in evil, wicked acts, they all suffer consequences. It's interesting. Most of the, most of the time, the consequence is death. Uh, often a grisly death, either before or after, or sometimes both, if some of you know the famous scene from the movie or you've heard about it. What, 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 are they, what are they doing? They don't use the word sin. Of course, they don't really call, they don't really uh, describe these acts as anything, uh, call them anything, but they describe, they depict these actions. They depict choices and they follow through with the effects of it. And what's interesting about, again, the whole series is you find that not only are they depicting evil actions and their consequences, but they're also showing their degrees or different degrees of evil. There are some people who are, quote-unquote, good people, normal people, who make bad choices, make sinful choices, we would say, and that begins to snowball because they have to make another choice and another choice and another choice, and eventually they've gotten themselves into a really big pickle and they end up dead. Then you have people that are 
evil. They, are, they pursue evil. They do evil things. There are various kinds of evil here. I won't go into all the dichotomies, different kinds of evil. But we'll just say these are evil people that do evil on purpose. They may, may be professional evildoers. They also meet violent end in the movie. But what's also interesting is not only are there sort of uh, degrees of sin being depicted, there's also the idea in, in, in the, the, the movie and the films that bad things happen to good people too. So it's not a simplistic story. It's not a story that says if you do good, good things will happen. If you do bad, bad things will happen. No, it certainly shows bad things happening to good people. It shows bad things happening to good people because bad people do them to good people, but it also shows natural evils like sickness and even freak accidents happening to good people. So it's interesting in that respect. And the reason why I mention it is because, you know, this is the season of Lent. And if Lent is about anything, it's about sin and repentance from sin. But a lot of preachers, I think, don't like preaching on sin. A lot of preachers get uncomfortable preaching about sin. And I would also say a good many parishioners don't like to hear preachers preach on sin. I think one of the reasons why is because we get worried that the preacher is going to call us out for our sin, right? We don't want that. Uh, we, don't, we don't want uh, the preacher to say what we're doing is sin, and we don't want him to call us uh, out for sinners. Now, I'll first of all say, if we're worried that the preacher is going to tell us that we're sinful, well, you are. <laughs> so am I. We're all sinful. Uh, we all are sinful. We all commit sins. Uh, so there's not one of us who is absent from sin. Uh, but what I'm going to do today is I'm not going to go into morals about what is right and what is wrong, but basically give a primer on sin. Uh, how should we think about sin? And the reason why I mention the movies is if, if non-believers like the Cohen brothers and Noah Hawley, who is the showrunner for the TV series, if they are talking so much about sin, if our secular culture and its art and its music, various forms of media, is discussing, depicting, exploring the idea of sin, if secular culture is doing this, then doesn't that show us that the church should, should be doing this too? Isn't it an indication that if our culture is interested, highly acclaimed, critically acclaimed, very popular shows, discussing, exploring the idea of sin, doesn't that show us that we should be doing that too? That it's something that our culture is interested in? Not the least of all, not the least of which because the, the scriptures tell us to talk about it. And so I want to talk about it today. I think it's a relevant topic, and I think movies and shows like Fargo show us that it is. Today we're going to be looking at the epistle of James in chapter 1. The gospel of Matthew in its description of the 40, sorry, Mark, in its description of Jesus' time in the wilderness is sparse. It's only two verses. Mark is notoriously brief in, in many respects, and you have to go to other Gospels to fill it out. He doesn't even mention, I noticed, because I said this in the children's moment, he doesn't even mention, Mark doesn't even mention that Jesus fasted. He doesn't even say that. He just says he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he was with wild animals, which I don't think the other Gospels say. It's interesting. Uh, And the angels were ministering to him. One key point that we see in the Mark passage is it says the Spirit drove him. Mark is unique in that. The Spirit driving him out. The Spirit descends on him in this baptism and immediately drives him out. We'll talk about why that is and what that means for us in just a second. 
But because we only have two verses on the temptation of Jesus in today's text, we go to James. And, and we go to James to have a primer on sin, to learn about what sin is, to learn how, about how sin works, and to learn about what we should be doing about sin in our lives. Today I'm going to pull out four points from the text uh, that, we, that we read for today. The first is that there are external temptations to sin which are not sinful. There are internal temptations to sin which are sinful. Third point is there, there are intentional acts of the will which become sinful actions. And the fourth is that sin leads to death. So first, there are external temptations to sin which are not sinful. We are tempted often from the outside. We see something, we notice something, someone says something to us, and that's an external temptation. It's coming from outside of ourself. These temptations that come from outside of ourself, if someone comes to you and starts tempting you, attacking you in various ways, if, so, if you're approached with something, it's not your fault. It's happening outside of you. And so it's not sinful. It's not something that is your fault, that you have bear any guilt for. James doesn't explicitly say this. He begins in verse um, 13. Let no one say he is tempted. No, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. James sort of breaks into points 2 and 3 and 4 for me. But we need to back up to point one, which is to say there is such a thing as temptation which is not sinful. How do we know that? Well, we know it from the gospel. We know it because Jesus was tempted. As we read in Matthew, as we read in Luke, that the devil was tempting Jesus at the end of his 40-day fasting. That the devil was trying to get him to sin. Three specific uh, things he tried to tempt him with. We are told in the, the, the letter to the Hebrews, which... Uh, which I was reading this morning for morning prayer, which says that Jesus is a faithful high priest for us because, and is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted. He was tempted, the writer says, in every way that we have been tempted, yet without sin. So what this shows us is there is a form of temptation that is not sin. It comes from outside of us. Jesus was tempted only in the first way. The temptation came from outside of him, and he was tempted by it, and yet he did not sinfully desire it, and so therefore it was not a sin for him. So that's the first category. There's external temptation that is not sinful. The second category we see in verse verse, uh, 14, and that is when we, our sinful desire lays hold of the external temptation. Verse 14, it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This is the sinful desire that each and every one of us possesses. We believe and teach in our theological tradition in something called original sin, which means that every human being is sinful. Every human being is, sins and is born into sin. And every human being has what we call original corruption, which means our, our wills are corrupted. We're not able truly to choose the good without God's help. And because of our original sin and our original corruption, we have sinful desires. This probably isn't news to you. Like, 
I think we all recognize that we have sinful desires. But these are a result of our original sin and original corruption that was imparted to us from our first parents, Adam and Eve. It says here that there is a kind of temptation that is internal, which means basically my sinful my sinful uh, nature, my sin nature is tempting me. This is not an act of the conscious will. Okay, This is before our will takes over and we make a decision. This is our inclination, our proclivity. It's not something that we choose to do, but it's something that's in us, deep within us, corrupted in our soul. When our own desire takes hold of that external temptation, and I guess in basic term, wants it, wants it bad, That's sinful, right? That's sinful. The reason why I think this distinction is important is because there is some confusion in the Christian church whether orientations or proclivities are in themselves sinful. There are some who teach that it isn't sinful unless you act on it. And that is in some sense true, as I'll mention in my third point. And there is a distinction between being drawn to something and acting out on it. But it is not the case that it's not sinful unless you act on it. James is clear. There is a sinful desire, and the word for desire here implies a sinful desire. In fact, it means a sinful desire. There is a sinful desire here that draws us toward the external temptation. It's not an act of the will, but it's something deep, deep within us. And so it is sinful. And so for me, if, if my uh, orientation is toward women of the opposite sex, people of the opposite sex, I, have a, I may have a sinful desire in me. In fact, I'll, I'll acknowledge it. I don't think it'll surprise anybody. I will have an, a desire in me toward the opposite sex. If, if, if that is oriented toward anything but my wife, that's sinful. Whether I choose to do it or not, it's a part of my original corruption. If our desire is toward some, some good, some thing, uh, toward acquisition of stuff, greed, we might call it. Uh, we might have a problem with anger or greed. Those things may be deep within our soul and our being. Um, they are in themselves sinful even if we don't act on them. As James said, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. These are not neutral terms by his own desire. So that's the second category. The third category, and this distinction I hope you'll be able to grasp, comes in the first half of verse 15. Then the desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Okay? The distinction here is between an unconscious, or you might say an unwilling, an unwanted in the case of believers, an unwanted desire, and using your will to act out on that desire. That's the distinction between verse 14 and verse 15. When my desire leads me to do something, and it could be a thought inside my head, to entertain the temptation that my desire is stoking up, or a physical act that I hurt someone else, or I say something. Many of our confessions of sin cover all these categories. If, If you... Look back on some of our confessions. Maybe you can think back in your mind. We will say things. I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We also will confess our sinful nature. 
All these things are things that we should confess, and they're different, different categories of sin. But in verse 15, we find that when desire, when our will, we have a conscious act of the will, and we say, I am going to do that thing that I really want, that's what's called a particular sin, a sin act. And there is a distinction between a sin act and a desire. In many ways, we can't control our desires. I will talk a little bit about ways that we can, we can grow in making those desires uh, lower in intensity and frequency. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in, in many ways, we can't control them. They're unwanted. They just come up upon us in certain times. And uh, many times we may feel powerless and help us to do anything about it. There's a distinction between that which we confess is sinful, it's a part of our sinful nature, and acting on it. I think this is important because many Christians, well, many people in general, human beings, feel guilt. I don't know if any one of you has ever felt guilt before. I certainly have felt guilt, uh, and I know many of us feel guilt. Some of us struggle with guilt. The distinction is what should we be guilty about? What should we feel guilty about? I think this helps us because it says, look, there's a part of me that's sinful, okay? Do I, need to, do I need to hate myself because of my sin, my proclivity, the, the, the original corruption that is in me that I didn't choose to have? No. You should not hate yourself. You should not heap guilt upon yourself for that. There's a distinction, though, between that and conscious acts, which there is a measure of guilt and things that we need to confess and own and, uh, and stop doing. Right? So hopefully that helps you as you parse through your feelings of guilt and shame. I don't, I don't advocate shame as a, as a, as a positive you know, measure for almost anything. I, the Bible does talk about shame, that, we, that uh, there's certain things that are shameful. But in my experience, shame doesn't do anything but to tear us down and lead us into more and more despair and sin. And Jesus, it even says that Jesus was... Uh, on the cross despised the shame it's almost like he took away shame on the cross so we're not supposed to have shame we see in the garden that Adam and Eve were naked and had no shame shame is a result of the fall so I don't think that shame is a is a good really good tool uh, for sanctification Um, but I especially want us to know that in our original corruption the desires our proclivities our orientation whatever it is uh, that's not something that we should hate ourselves for. But we should, we should feel the weight of our sin acts, the things that we do, the thoughts that we think. And there's also grades here, right? There are thoughts, and actions are worse than thoughts. If I think something in my head, that's a sin, if it's a sinful thing I'm thinking. But if I carry it out with my body, it's worse, Right? There's also sins of word. In fact, uh, when you look at the the grades of sin uh, uh, in the Bible, oftentimes a lot of Christians will focus on sexual sins, right? These are the sins that we tend to focus on, especially evangelical Christians. But the Bible says the worst sin, as it goes through a list of sins in Proverbs, the worst sin at the end of the list is sowing discord among the brothers. It's a sin of the tongue. And, and I think that we have a correction to make, probably overemphasis on some sins and not really ever addressing the sins of our speech, which tear people down. 
and the Bible says, are the worst kind. James talks about it a little later. I think in chapter 2 he talks about it, or chapter 3. Chapter 3, about the tongue and how it can, settle, it, was, it, it can set the whole forest ablaze. But obviously, carrying it out physically, whether it is with sound, with your speech, whether it is with your body, is worse than thinking it. And so there are grades of sin, and obviously there are worse sins than others, and we won't get into all that today because it's not in the text at all. But it is, it is something that is there. So what's the fourth thing that we see? The fourth thing we see is the second half of verse 15. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings on death. Now that is certainly the commentary that the Cohen brothers excel at in all of their movies, <laughs> is that sin brings on death, right? Many movies explore this. The Godfather movies explore this. It's a sort of a, it's a, it's a lesson in the depravity of a person and, and the fruits of evil. But these movies tend to focus on physical death, how sin and evil choices lead to physical death. And, and it certainly brings consequences in our life. Sin has consequences, and the ultimate consequence is our natural life sometimes. But it's not only natural or physical life, it is also spiritual life. Any sin brings on spiritual death. Any sin, when it is fully grown, it begins to degrade our soul. Right? Why is it that a, that a person who makes bad choices continues to make bad choices as we see depicted in films and TV and, and in real life? Well, is, is it because the person is just inherently worse than somebody else? Or is it because sin degrades you? And maybe degrades your ability to do what's right. How are we going to pull ourselves out of the spiral? You know, sin leads to death when it is fully conceived. It leads to death. Paul in, in Romans says the wages of sin is death. And so that's, that's, that's the dichotomy. It's not a dichotomy. It's a quadricotomy. However that works. It's four, four types or four stages of, of, of sin. We have external temptations, which are not sin. We have internal desires, which are sinful. We have sin acts, which are particular or actual sins. And then we have the fact that sin leads to death. Where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Well, that's what's around the verses I've talked about. We talked about verse 13, 14, and 15, but what's in 12 and what's in 16 through 18? Well, these verses discuss the person in verse 12 who is steadfast under the trial. So there's a blessing of the crown of life of someone who is able to withstand the temptation and not give in to it. Okay? And then we skip down to verse 16, where it says, verse 17, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Okay? And then we see in verse 18 that there are, that God is bringing forth first fruits of a new creation. What do these things teach us? I think these things teach us that yes, it, we are blessed if we withstand the trial, but this has to be a gift from above. What is the point of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness? What is the point of him going into the wilderness for 40 days, fasting and doing battle with the devil? What is the point of that? What well, we sang about it earlier in the service. He gained victory. He gained victory in that fight. He won a battle against temptation. He won a battle against the temptation to evil. He is the one who in verse 12 
remain steadfast under the trial. It is him who remained steadfast under the trial and gained the crown of life. It is he who was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. Now, just as an aside, you may say, well, if he didn't, have, if he didn't really want it, then he wasn't really tempted, right? I, maybe you resonate with that question. How is it that if he, wasn't, if he didn't experience the internal desire to do it, then how was, was he really tempted like we were? And I, I will grant you that, that is, that's a tough one to address. But I will remind you of something that I've said before, and I'll say again. One of my seminary professors said, you should not try to unscrew the inscrutable. You know, these are, there are some things that are mysteries that are not meant to be unraveled. How do we explain the mystery of the Trinity? Three and one, one and three. How do we explain the mystery of the incarnation? One person and two natures, distinct and yet undivided. How do we understand that? I think in similar fashion, how do we understand that Jesus was tempted yet without sin and at the same time, he is able to sympathize with us because he experienced everything we have. In some sense, we, we, we believe these things because the Bible says them. We, we affirm that. But there must have been something about the way Jesus experienced just the external temptation, though he didn't have the draw to act it out, in which he was able to understand our weakness and his infinite wisdom, that he was able to sort of go through the progression and his human experience. And he did suffer pain. He did suffer illness. He suffered other uh, earthly uh, pains. And so it's something to do with his wisdom and knowledge and the receiving of a temptation that he was able, he is able to understand what it's like, even though he was not drawn by sinful desire. So the point here is that Jesus won the victory for us and he gives us a gift from above. Nothing good comes to us, James says, except it comes from above. And that gift is called sanctification in Christian terms, which means that we are made more and more like Christ. How does this work in our life? Well, I'll tell you how it doesn't work. It doesn't work by hating yourself, as I've already said. Hating yourself is not a part of sanctification. What we're told to do in order to mortify our sin or put it to death is we do this. Ready? Here's Here's the trick. You want to hear the trick? To getting rid of sin. Here it is. Ready? You come to church. You hear the word of God read and preached. You participate in the sacraments, the bread and the wine, which give grace to us. You confess your sins to one another. James says later, confess your sins in chapter 5. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There's nothing magical here. There's no steps, you know, steps of, uh, you know, you know, that I could write a book about, you know, a formula for getting rid of sin. It's really kind of basic. We participate in the means of grace, the word, the sacrament, and prayer. We confess our sins to God. We confess our sins to each other. And if there is a particular sin in which you are struggling, that you, even after confessing to a trusted friend, you feel like you need more help with, you can bring it to your pastor. And I know that may sound scary, like if I tell this to my pastor, he's going to look down on me. He's going to judge me and condemn me. Let me just say, I I doubt there's anything you can say that I haven't heard before. 
And I will also say that unless I'm required by law or I feel I'm morally obligated to report because someone is in harm, uh, it's going to stay between you and me. These are the ways that we deal with sin in our life. Right? We participate in the means of grace. We confess our sins. We share them and we get spiritual counsel from someone we trust. And slowly, this doesn't happen overnight, slowly as we live and as we, go, as we grow, we will be enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. As we live this faithful long life of doing these things, slowly we'll see those temptations lessen in intensity and in frequency. And so that's the primer on sin. As we look to Jesus, who has done battle with the devil, as we look to Jesus, who has won the victory and who gives us this gift, we trust that these ordinary means of grace, is what they're called, that give us the grace of God from heaven, as James, James describes, will be enough. They will be enough in order for us to grow in faithfulness to him and attain the crown of life. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Please rate and review us on your podcast service and share with anyone who may be interested. The intro and outro music for the New Life podcast is provided by Sandra McCracken with her permission. Please visit her website at sandramccracken.com. We'll see you next week.